We're in Psalm 51, and uh, we're taking quite a few sermons from Psalm 51. That, as you know, is my style. <laughs> uh, so we'll have at least one more from Psalm 51, maybe two more. You'll be glad when Dan gets back. Dan and Marlene are on, are on holidays now. But Psalm 51 is one of those few psalms where we know the historical background because the, at the beginning of Psalm 51, uh, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, and that is really in the Hebrew text in the original. What happened between David and Bathsheba is well documented in Scripture. It was a black mark on the personal history of David. David tried to cover his sin by bringing Bathsheba's husband home from the battlefield. Uh, Uriah was his name, hoping that Uriah would go into his wife and uh, that the child would be thought to be Uriah's and not David's. Uh, Uriah was too noble to be with his wife, so he slept another place. David found this out, and then David tried to get him drunk, if all things. It's right there in the Bible. And that didn't work. Uriah still didn't go home. So David sends a letter with Uriah to Joab, who was the commander of the forces out in battle. Basically, it was a letter which Uriah would not know the content, telling Joab, put Uriah on the front of the line. Put him right up at the front of the battle, then withdraw, then he'll be killed. Those are the schemes. Those are the plans that David went through, and that plan worked. Uriah died, and David quickly married Bathsheba, so it would be thought that the child was his and Bathsheba's after their marriage. Up to this point, only David and Bathsheba knew who the father of the child was. Well, that's not quite right. God knew who the child of the father was. We read in 2 Samuel 11:27, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. So how was God going to confront David with his sin? Well, he sends Nathan, the prophet. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. And Nathan tells a story about two men in one city. One was a very rich man, had a lot of flocks, and a guest came to his house one night. The other man was a very poor man, small family, had one little ewe lamb that was almost a family member, slept with the family, ate with the family, loved by the family. The traveler, being a rich man, being a selfish man, didn't want to deplete his flock, so he went and took the one lamb from this poor family and had it killed for his feast. So Nathan tells this story to David. Here's what we read. David's anger burned greatly against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan says, David, you are the man. You are the man. He goes on to mention how God had blessed David with many, many things. 
Then we read in verse 9, Why have you, Nathan says to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? And then Nathan says, uh, You're going to have trouble, David. You're going to have heartache in your family. Things are not going to go well with you. The first thing that didn't go well was the baby died. David pled and pled and fasted and cried out to God for the life of the child. And the child died. And many other things happened in David's family as well. But then Nathan the prophet says in verse 13 of 2 Samuel, The Lord has also taken away your sin and you shall not die. Now that seems outrageous. Bathsheba is violated. Uriah is murdered. David tells all kinds of lies to cover his tracks, and he despised and scorned the Lord. Shouldn't he suffer for his sins? Shouldn't he pay the price for his sins? Why is he promised forgiveness? Is that justice? Is that God acting righteously? How do you explain David's pardon? How do you explain your pardon and my pardon? One thing we must not do as we examine Psalm 51 and see the sins of David is to see him as a greater sinner, a worse sinner than we are. And that David somehow deserves greater judgment than we do. If we are thinking this way, we are denying our sinfulness and we are denying our desperate need for grace. Now, we ought to be outraged if God is letting David off the hook, if God is sweeping his sins under the rug. But God is not doing that in Psalm 51. David repented of his sins. David recognized what he had done after being confronted by Nathan. He was trusting in the mercy of God as his only hope. David didn't understand the redeeming work of Christ because, of course, this is centuries before Christ. He didn't understand that an all-knowing God looked into the future and saw his son dying as a substitute for David's sins, bearing the full weight of divine wrath Jesus did upon himself. He also saw, God saw the righteousness of Jesus laid to David's account. So God could pardon David, God could count David as righteous and not compromise. Now here's the point for you and me. If we repent of our sins, we are forgiven for the same reason. Not because our sins are less serious than David's. They're not. Not because of self-atonement. Not because we have somehow worked hard to be a better person and work off our guilt. Doesn't, doesn't operate that way. But because we have a substitute who took our place in judgment. The only reason any of us are forgiven is, is that reason. That is the objective reality of David being forgiven and justified in the presence of God. But Psalm 51 also describes how David felt his emotions how he thought. 
the incredible truth of the atoning work of Christ ought to leave us mentally amazed and emotionally overwhelmed at the mercy of God. But sometimes we don't feel a thing. So David's response to sin is found in Psalm 51. And it's the way we ought to think and feel about our sins. We must not call our sins by other names, an error in judgment, a personal failing, a mistake. We are to feel the full weight of sin, the guilt, the shame. We are to be crushed and grieved by our sins. So what David does is what we must do. He turns to God. We've already looked last time at the first three verses. Where did David learn this? Uh, O God, according to uh, your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Where did David learn about the compassion, the mercy of God? Well, look in Exodus chapter 34. God's talking to Moses. The Lord passed by in front of him, proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. David understood this. He understood this. Some people say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a harsh God, a vindictive God. People argue, I don't believe in the Old Testament God. The God I believe in doesn't get angry, doesn't have wrath. He's a kinder, gentler God, like Jesus. There is one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, same God. David knew he had sinned, but also knew that he could be forgiven for his sin. Because of God's redeeming grace, David could be cleansed and freed from condemnation. On this side of the cross, we know a whole lot more about that theme, that reality, than David ever knew. We know Christ. But we need to lay hold of the mercy of God the same way as David did. So he turns to God. He prays for cleansing. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. In verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Perhaps his thoughts are returning to the Passover. And the firstborn of Egypt died, but the house of the children of Israel had the blood sprinkled on the doorpost. The death angel passed over those houses. That's how we get the name Passover. And those homes received mercy and eventually were delivered out of Egypt. Under the Mosaic system, tens of thousands, I would venture to say hundreds of thousands of animals were slaughtered, all foreshadowing the coming of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. David knew he needed to be washed. David felt dirty. He felt polluted and defiled, as we should when we sin. Paul Tripp says, when your sin really does become ugly to you, when It produces pain in your heart and sickness in your stomach. You can celebrate forgiveness, but you want something more. You want to be clean. 
you long to be once and for all purified from all sin. You want your sin once for all washed away. You want to be free of every dark residue of sinful thought, desire, word, or deed. And what a glorious thing to stand before God forgiven, no condemnation, but cleansed. The pollution removed. We sang some older songs today, and I really enjoyed that. There is an old hymn. What can wash away my sin? Answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, the liberal wing of Christianity says that we either are not that bad anyway, so don't need a Savior, or that when Jesus died, he died for everybody. Whatever your religion, whatever your lifestyle, therefore everybody is forgiven. But God's forgiveness is never automatic or unconditional. It is not granted to people just because it There was a transaction in history on the cross. God commands us to repent. And repentance is the humble admission that we are sinners deserving divine wrath. But God in mercy has provided a way of escape, the only way of escape in his son. So although Christ has purchased our forgiveness, he paid the full price, that fact does not negate our asking. It is the basis for our asking. And knowing what Christ has done for us, and in faith asking for the blessings of what Christ has done for us, leads to forgiveness and to cleansing. The command to repent, to cry out for mercy, is found all through the Bible. A person may say, I will not repent. I don't need to repent. Repent of what? I'm a good person. That person is proud, defiant, rejects the work of Christ, refuses the love and grace of God. For that person, there is no forgiveness of sins ever. David confesses the seriousness of his sins. He cannot erase from his memory what he has done. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions, My sin is ever before me. How could he possibly forget what he did with Bathsheba? How he schemed and planned and had Uriah basically murdered. The mental tape keeps playing and playing and playing and he cannot turn it off. The Apostle Paul never forgot what he did as Saul of Tarsus prior to his salvation. He had been a hater of Jesus. He had been a ferocious persecutor of Christians. And in the New Testament, even as a Christian, he frequently mentions, this is what I once was. This is what I once did. When you think of the nature and the magnitude of David's sin and Paul's sin, you say, well, I can understand why they can't forget that. But sometimes, especially when we were saved later in life, 
We think of the lifestyle we lived before becoming a Christian. We think of the, all the stuff that we did back then. And we know we're forgiven, but it's hard to forget. And we know even as Christians, we sin as Christians, we say things, we do things, we think things. And we play the tape over and over and over again in our minds. If we're not careful, we get, we get bogged down with guilt and shame. If sins are confessed, God remembers them no more. That is, he does not hold them against us. And I'm not saying that we can completely forget, literally forget, have amnesia about what we did. I'm saying that the emotional trauma of those things no longer need to have the impact on us that they once had. If we understand the tremendous blessings of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Our sins may never be completely forgotten, but they can be completely forgiven. Then he sees his sin is primarily against God. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is reminded, 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, the thing that David did was evil in the sight of God. Nathan says to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? This does not mean that David's actions didn't hurt Bathsheba, didn't hurt Uriah. Uriah was killed, basically at David's hand. But it means that sin is not defined in relationship to people, but in relationship to God. Hurting people by our sinful conduct is bad, real bad. Hurting God, belittling God, defying God, dishonoring God is a whole lot worse. Sin is not the violation of an impersonal rule. It's not that we're merely rebelling against the moral code that we've made up. It goes far beyond and much more than behaving badly. Sin is defined, dishonoring, belittling, blaspheming a person who is called God. Every time we sin, we say, God, what I want to do is more important than what you command me to do. I don't care how my conduct affects you. I know what I want, I know what I'll have, and that's that. When we sin, we declare ourselves to be sovereign, that our will will take priority over God's will. We are playing God when we sin. Listen to what Paul Tripp says. The desire to be God rather than serve God lies at the bottom of every sin that anyone has ever committed. Sin isn't first rooted in a philosophical debate of the appropriateness or healthiness of a certain ethic. No, sin is rooted in my unwillingness to find joy in having my life under the authority of and for the glory of another. Sin is rooted in my desire to live for me. It's driven by my propensity to indulge my every feeling, satisfy every desire, 
and meet my every need. I want to interject some thoughts from the Lord's Prayer. Especially one phrase here. It pertains to what we're talking about. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We say these words, they're part of the liturgy in many churches. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a radical, radical statement. And I wonder if we really mean it. If we say it, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we mean this? Do we want this? Do we understand the tremendous upheaval it will cause in our lives? Let me go a little bit deeper here. There are things we want in our lives and things we don't want in our lives, and we know the difference. When we discover we are not getting what we want, we get upset with people, with circumstances, and ultimately with God. So let me go through this. Your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. We want material things and perhaps believe that it's our right to have a certain lifestyle. And so we end up buying stuff we don't need and can't afford, and we shortchange God on the giving end. Happens a lot in Christian circles. We want to to be appreciated, to be esteemed, and are unhappy when we're not. We're trying our hardest to keep things under control, to control things that unfold in our lives, but it doesn't work very well. We want to be successful in what we do and, and find it very difficult to cope with failure and wonder, why is this person so successful and I'm not successful? And our main problem there is that we're misdefining success. We're taking a worldly concept of success, which is wrong. You take a biblical concept of success and you won't have the problem. We want good health, sure we do, and find ourselves becoming discouraged and fearful and worried when we struggle with health issues. We want our daily life to be fear from stress and from struggle, but from day to day we find stress and struggle. We want to be free from conflict. The big trouble there is that there's a whole lot of different wills in the world besides mine. My wife has a will and I have a will. If you have children around, they have wills. If you work, there's a whole bunch of wills there. So conflict along the way is going to happen. All this boils down to one reality which maybe we don't want to admit. I want my kingdom to come. I want my will to be done on earth. So the Lord's Prayer is a wonderful prayer, but it's a dangerous prayer. When we say, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are asking for the end of our personal sovereignty. We are requesting that our will be shaped by the will of another, mainly God. So back to Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When we sin, we are rejecting the sovereignty of God. When we sin, we are pitting our wills against his. When we sin, we are renouncing his kingdom and setting up our own little kingdoms. 
Now notice that David vindicates God so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is an amazing statement. David is proclaiming and praising God for his justice. God is justified. God is blameless. Yes, even in the death of the child born to Bathsheba and David. And how that death broke David's heart. But David is refusing to bring accusation against God. He is refusing to say, God, what are you doing? How could you do such a thing? And I warn myself, and I warn you folks, don't ever accuse God of injustice. That's blasphemy. That's serious stuff. Do we understand his ways? No. Are we hurt by what he ordains? Yes, often. But if he is holy, if he is God, his ways are just. Don't ask me to explain his ways. I can't do that. As a pastor, I've been in many situations of grief and sorrow. Pastor, why has God allowed this? I remember when our granddaughter died of a crib death. And our daughter Sylvia saying, why, Dad? Why? I was trying so hard. I don't have the answer. I can give love. I can give lots of support. But to snap out an answer to that question, I didn't have it, and Sylvia didn't expect me to have it. So let's not accuse God of injustice. There's a book that's really been written by Rob Bell called Love Wins. And Rob Bell is a professing evangelical, but in this book he basically says, God is so loving that he will not exercise his wrath against anybody eternally, never. There is no hell. There is no damnation. This is an evangelical speaking who's very popular. No, love wins. Not wrath, but love. And I say... Pastor Bell, what Bible are you reading? The justice of God should comfort us as sinners. His assessment of us is right on the mark. He's not biased. He's not prejudiced. He's not ignorant. Every judgment he makes is accurate and fair and valid. God never reads us wrong. He never gets it wrong in his judgment. His knowledge is complete. His assessment accords with the facts. His view of me is a whole lot more accurate than my view of me. God's discipline of his children is always right, always fair. Never distorted. Never weakened by God's anger or ignorance. His justice is restrained by his mercy. God never flies off the handle. Never gets impatient never tired, never fed up with us. Paul Tripp says, I can place myself in the hands of the justice of the one who sees me with accuracy and deals with me righteously. So God, Paul says, is the just one and he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He can forgive our sins without compromising his holiness. 
He does not have to forget about justice. He does not have to lower the standard. He can exercise justice, and he did, by pouring out his wrath upon Jesus Christ as our substitute. Again, listen to these words. I don't have to manipulate God's view of me. I don't have to run from him in fear. I don't have to rationalize away my wrongs. I don't have to work to shift the blame on someone else. I don't have to put forward false pretenses. I don't have to marshal arguments for my acceptability. I don't have to try to buy my way into heaven. God is blameless. You hurt. I hurt. God is blameless. Trust him. Ponder how comforting it will be that you can stand before God whose assessment of you is completely accurate. Celebrate the fact that God's holy justice is tempered by his gracious mercy. Rejoice that you are far from perfect and will never come close to being perfect, but you can stand righteously in the presence of God because you have received a gift of righteousness from Jesus Christ if you believe in him. And finally, as you ponder these truths, never, never ceased to be amazed at the grace of God. Let us pray. Father, we sometimes think that David was a real bad person who did bad things, and he did bad things. And we do bad things. We sin against you probably every day of our lives. And our hope is not that we're going to try better and and perform better. That's legalism. That rises out of pride, not humility. Our only hope is the cross, always and forever. There's no other reason that we are in your family, if we are in your family, except for your grace. We don't deserve to be there. There's no other reason that we will go to heaven and not hell, except for your grace. There's no other reason. And God, when we struggle with heartache in life, and we all do, and when we're trying our hardest to understand why things are unfolding as they are, may we never blaspheme you by blaming you, but humbly trust you, and you will be there with your grace and mercy and strength and peace. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.